Amen. Thank you, choir. Thank you, William, Andy, for leading us, all who have led us in worship this morning. As we stand in honor of God's word, I invite you to turn with me to Romans 13. It's a privilege this morning to fill this pulpit while our pastor Matt and his family travel back to Waco. We pray for them for their safe journeys along the way. I'm grateful we have a chance to gather around the scriptures together here. Would you hear the word of the Lord from Romans 13, beginning in verse 11? Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Would you pray with me? Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. God, would you bless the reading of your word? Would you send forth your spirit? God, would you transform us in this hour? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Be seated. Make no provision for the flesh. That's a dangerous place to start a sermon on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. I don't know about y'all, but I spent most of last week making provision for the flesh. Last weekend, I was trying out new recipes in the Hayes Test Kitchen. Most of mine flopped. Early in the week, I drove about six miles just, just doing loops of the HEB parking lot to make provision for the flesh. Thursday morning, 7 a.m., I was out there trying to kindle a charcoal fire. It was raining cats and dogs. I was lighting that fire to make provision for the flesh. A couple hours after that, lo and behold, I find myself back at the HEB. God bless those people being open on Thanksgiving morning. I was sent out to get the flour to make provision for the flesh. I get home with the flour and I'm told, we have no cheese for the macaroni. So I go back to the HEB <laughs> to make provision for the flesh. As I'm leaving the HEB, driving home, my phone rings and says, we are out of milk. Could, could you pick it up while you're at the store? I said, no, send someone else to make provision for the flesh. I'm coming home. Father-in-law graciously got the milk to make provision for the flesh and for my daughter. By the time it was all over, I just gave myself over to slumber. I collapsed. I missed the whole first half of the Cowboys game. I was asleep. It, it was like I was living Romans 13 turned inside out. It's a dangerous text for this Sunday. I don't know what I was thinking, y'all. So is Romans 13 just one massive indictment of my Thanksgiving holiday? I don't think so. See, we serve a Lord who is a joyful God and delights in our feasts. We also serve a compassionate God who commands us to rest. 
So when Paul is talking here about the flesh, he's, he's not talking about our physical bodies. He's, he's not talking about that part of us that needs food and water and shelter and, yes, even sleep. He's talking about that fallen part of our nature, that part of us that's bent away from God and, and towards ourselves. Even with the Spirit of Christ within us, we, we feel that tug of the flesh. Paul wants us to resist that. He wants us to fight it. So he gives us a series of everyday pictures to help us do that. And when I say everyday, I mean that very literally. He puts the cookies way down on the bottom shelf here with three commands. They're so familiar, so everyday. I'm confident every one of you has done all three of them. Paul tells us, tell time, wake up and get dressed. Tell time, wake up and get dressed. Say those three with me. Tell time, wake up, get dressed. First, tell time. Verse 11, Paul says, you know what time it is. In this instruction to, to tell time embedded within it is an acknowledgement that, that time has an objective quality to it, whether we like it or not. Time is. I hate to break it to you, but time is not concerned with how you feel about it. Time doesn't even care whether you acknowledge it. Now, all of us, I think, have felt that, that tug of time governing us more than we want it to, especially in this season of busyness. As we've punched things in our phones and our, our calendars, like William reminded us earlier, sometimes it seems like that calendar is running us instead of us running it. We feel that tug. When I was a little guy, my dad sold cars and trucks. He lived by the clock. When he left the dealership after his last day working there, he slid that watch off his wrist. He stuffed it in the glove box and said, never again. He hadn't put a watch on to this day. Now my college roommate took this a little bit further. World weary 18 year old philosopher as he was, he said, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of time being a tyrant and ruling over me. I'm just going to opt out. He came out and just announced this to us in the, in the living room one evening. We were watching The Office or something. He said, I'm, I'm done telling time. He said, cool, Ben, way to go. He said, no, guys, I'm serious, I'm serious. From now on, I'm just going to live like time doesn't matter. I'll eat when I'm hungry. I'll go to bed when I'm tired. I'll wake up when I feel rested. When I feel ready to learn something, I'll go to class. <laughs> Said, cool, way to go. See the school administrators in the room just, just cringing. Well, Ben made a valiant effort. He, he lasted about 36 hours. He wasn't keeping time, but the rest of us were. He found seven o'clock, the dining hall was gonna shut down, lock the door, whether he was hungry or not. The professor said, Ben, when, when we feel like it's time to put a grade in the grade book, we're going to give you an F. <laughs> ben found it's, it's possible to opt out of timekeeping, but you can't opt out of time. So what time is it? Paul tells us the night is far gone, the day is near. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 
Paul tells us this is the day, this is, this is the hour of salvation. For Paul, he measured time not primarily in hours and minutes, but, but in terms of life and death. And he said with the coming of Christ, with that, that first advent that we're beginning to celebrate today, the world has fundamentally changed. Everything is different now. We mark this in our calendars. I grew up, we divided time into, into BC and AD, before Christ. I started out knowing as after death. Now, Tommy Liu, I got to high school and became a Latin scholar. I learned anno, anno Domini. You can help my pronunciation later, but the year of the Lord, the year of our Lord. Now, it's come to my attention since then that, that BC and AD worked pretty well. It got me all the way through school. In certain circles today, that's become a little bit passe. People now say, oh, we, we don't really want to talk about BC and AD. Let's talk about BCE and CE. We'll talk about the common era and before the common era. Now, here's the thing about that. Best I can tell, these new abbreviations map really well onto that old system. We can change up our acronyms, but we're still telling time by the coming of Christ. That time of Jesus' first advent still marks that hinge point of history. In Galatians, Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Since then, everything is different. So I have no real quarrel if people want to change the, the acronyms. Being sensitive to the consciences of others, I can live with that because we are in the common era. Not common in the sense that there's anything ordinary about it, but common in the sense that salvation is available to everybody. It's freely offered to all of us. So we need to know what time it is. Yet even in this day of common grace, common salvation available to all, Paul also says, we're still living in the dark. The night is far gone, the day is near. He says the night is far gone. He doesn't mean it's way back in the rearview mirror. He says it's, a lot of it's past, it's nearly over, but we are in those darkest hours before the dawn. Our friend David Garland says, we live in two different time zones. We're in the day of salvation, but we're also stumbling in the dark. For many of us, the, the nighttime and the darkness is a time of fear. You may not fear the, the monsters under the bed anymore, but I bet you've got some grown-up fears. We worry about terrorism and violence. How many shootings have you heard about this week? We worry about a terminal diagnosis, getting bad news from the doctor we just don't want to hear. We worry about dementia, we worry about divorce. We fear inflation almost as much as we fear isolation. We fear being estranged and we warn our kids about stranger danger. There's plenty to be afraid of in the dark. For some of us, the night is not just a matter of fear. Sometimes it's just weariness. There's a beautiful cry for help in the Book of Common Prayer for the evenings. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night. A lot of us are doing a lot of 
working and watching, and, and we just find ourselves weary. I remember in my daughter's earliest days when she was an infant, just staying up through all the hours of the night with her. I'd clutch her close to my chest, and, and we'd just bounce. We'd bounce together. I couldn't sit down. She didn't like that. I couldn't be still. She didn't like that either, and so we would bounce. I did pretty well at 11 and 12, and I did okay at 1 and 2. So we got to about 4 in the morning. I was bouncing and I was praying. Some of the most fervent prayers I've ever prayed. I asked for two things. Number one, I said, Lord, when I fall asleep and tip over, let me fall back and not forward. (laughs) And I'd bounce some more. And I prayed, Lord, would you send the morning light Would you send the dawn? I didn't really understand why I even asked for this. She wasn't going to be any more restful when the sun came out. I wasn't going to be any more rested. Most days there wasn't any relief coming to ring the doorbell. Somehow I'd learned from experience. As soon as that horizon got a little bit pink, things would just be better. Things would be different. The dawn was going to change things. Pray to Lord, send that morning light. Friends, Jesus is our bright morning star. Matthew tapped into this, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, when he said, those living in darkness have seen a great light. You heard that invitation from the prophet. Come, house of Jacob, let's walk together in the light of the Lord. We need to tell time. The night is far gone, but the day is near. And so we kindle that flame of hope. And we wake up. That's the second instruction Paul has for us. Tell time and then wake up. For some of us, our our Thanksgiving afternoon drowsiness is sort of offset by the early morning wake up on Black Friday. Is Black Friday still a thing? I I know Amazon has changed everything. How how many of you woke up in the dark on Friday morning and and got in your car and drove to a store? Confession time. A a couple of you. Three of you will admit to Black Friday shopping this year. (laughs) As a boy growing up, one one of my treasured Thanksgiving traditions with my sister was to go through those Black Friday sales circulars. We'd get the newspaper and, and plow through them together. My family stopped taking the newspaper when I was in high school, and so we would load up in my Grand Prix. Caitlin and I would drive to the Triway Market. I'd buy a newspaper out of that coin box. We'd come home and go through and talk about the deals, and we would circle things. I never did Black Friday shopping. I haven't done it a day in my life. I certainly didn't then. I'd bought a Grand Prix and a high school boy's insurance premium and a 50-cent newspaper. I was, I was tapped out. But I loved looking through those papers. But when we got to my grandparents' house, my aunt and uncle and my cousins, they were serious about it. They would do the same thing that Caitlin and I did, but eventually the conversation would take a turn. As things got serious, they said, all right, what time are we going to wake up? They had a plan. They wanted to go out and take advantage of what was available. And so they said, we are going to set our alarms and be ready. We are going to get out there because if we wait until the daylight to go to Best Buy, it's going to all be over and done. If we hold off until, until the dawn to make our way over to Target, 
Those $5 bath towels are going to be gone with the wind. They woke up early. The older I've gotten, I've realized I really don't need an alarm clock anymore. In the mornings, I set an alarm every, every night before bed. I think about what I've got coming the next day, but pretty much inevitably, I wake up about six minutes before the alarm goes off. No matter if it's 4 a.m. or 8 a.m. It's, like it's like the world's lamest superpower. <laughs> I'll come awake, I know I've got six minutes left, and, and I like to sleep, especially this time of year. I'm, I'm cozy down under the blankets, I just lay there. I don't want my feet to touch that cold bathroom floor. I lay there and wait. It seems like it should be delightful, but some days it's just miserable. I, I realize I'm laying there. I've just got every muscle in my body tensed, waiting on that alarm to ring. I'm, I might as well be, be napping in a dentist chair. Sorry, Martin, no offense. And so about two minutes before the alarm, I just give it up, I say, forget it, I shut it off, I, I get up, I go about my day. But some mornings, some mornings are different. Maybe there's family coming into town I hadn't seen in a long time. Maybe we're going on a trip somewhere that I've been really excited to go. Rebecca and I might have special breakfast plans, or, or maybe there's a new book or a new album coming out I've been counting down for. Those mornings, I spring awake six minutes before my alarm. I can't wait to jump out of bed, to run, to meet the day. I've got this sense of anticipation. That's the kind of anticipation Paul wants us to have about the day of salvation yet to come, that, that second coming of the Lord Jesus. You hear the urgency in Paul's voice. You know what time it is. It is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. Wake up and run out to meet the dawn that's coming. We understand a little more of his urgency when we remember that in the Bible, sleep is often a euphemism for death. And so waking is a picture of resurrection life. Remember in Matthew 5, synagogue ruler Jairus has come to Jesus and said, Jesus, won't you come? My, my little girl's dying. We've got to get there. As they're making their way to the house, the servants come out. They say, Jairus, don't, don't trouble the teacher anymore. The little girl's gone. Jesus looks him in the eye and says, no, she's sleeping. Will you trust me? In John 11, Mary and Martha send to Jesus. They say, our brother Lazarus, the one that you love, is at the point of death. We, we need you here, Lord. Get here, get here. Jesus seems to drag his feet. His disciples are worked up about this. They say, come on, we got to hurry. We got to get there. It's time to go. Jesus says, oh, Lazarus is, Lazarus is sleeping. The disciples are a little slow on their metaphorical language. They say, well, well great. Why didn't you say so, Jesus? If he's, if he's sleeping, he'll, he'll get well. Then Jesus just makes it plain. He says, no, Lazarus is dead. We're still going. He gets there and he tells those grief-stricken sisters, I am the resurrection and the life. Over their protests, he tells those grieving neighbors, roll the stone away. He comes there and he stands there and he says, Lazarus, come out. Deep back in that tomb, 
that cold, stiff body of Lazarus starts to wiggle its fingers, starts to sniff the air a little bit. He walks forward at that command of the Lord. Jesus says, somebody get him out of these grave clothes. Get him something new to wear. It's time to get dressed. That's Paul's third instruction for us. Tell time, wake up, get dressed. I told y'all you had covered all three of these. Those of you watching online or on TV, I, I don't know, you may still be in your flannels or your long johns. That's between you and the Lord. Those of you in the room, way to go. Paul writes to the Romans, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verses 12 and 13 how, how Paul alternates. He, he gives some instructions. Don't do this, do that. Do that, don't do this. He's highlighting our attention on putting on the Lord Jesus, but he says there's some things we've got to deal with first. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Says so there's some things we've got to get shed of. We can't just layer Jesus on over the top of our former way of life. As you go through this list, some of you may tick the boxes and say, hey, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well here. Josh, I hadn't been drunk a day in my life. I wouldn't know how to debauch if I wanted to. <laughs> As it goes on, it starts to hit a little closer to home. What about quarreling? Is there any quarreling around your table last week? About jealousy. You saw those Black Friday ads. Did any little twinge of envy go off in your spirit? Paul says, we got to take these things off. we got to put on something new. When I was a first grader, I got to school one morning. On the way to class, I stopped off at the restroom. As I got inside, I realized to my, my horror, I'd left my pajamas on. I dressed for school, but I guess I was distracted watching those Saturday morning cartoons. And underneath my blue jeans, I had, I had my race car pajamas on. I was so upset by it. I felt fine until I realized it, but all of a sudden, everything, everything felt tight. I was lumpy. I couldn't move around. I felt ashamed. I felt embarrassed. I'd gotten dressed on the outside. Things looked pretty much okay, but, but I knew something wasn't right. We can't just layer the Lord Jesus Christ on over our envy and our quarreling and our strife, our dissensions. We've got to take these things off to get ready for the day. But neither can we put off those old things without clothing ourselves with Christ. Some today will tell you, hey, we're all on board with living honorably. Let's treat each other well. Let's, let's be good to each other. Let's be generous. But, you know, we can, we can just leave Jesus out of it. We're in the common era, after all. Friends, that's not going to work either. Bob Dylan saw right through that one. He said, you've got to serve somebody. This picture of 
taking off and putting on. Paul is riffing on the picture of baptism here. When we celebrate baptism here at First Baptist, we've, we've got a stock of loner robes up there in the loft. We'll kit you out with a nice white robe to wear down into the water, but through a lot of the history of the church, as people came to enter the waters of baptism, they would shed their old garments and step into the water as they were buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. A gleaming new white robe would be draped over them. It was theirs. It was one more picture to reinforce that symbolism. You have You've taken off the old. You have put on the new. Get dressed. So what does this mean? Paul tells us to, to live honorably. That doesn't just mean being virtuous, being, being neighborly. It means living distinctly Christ-like. He calls it the armor of light here. In Ephesians, he calls it the armor of God. That passage is printed in your worship guide in the, in the red box at the top. Let me read it for us. Paul wrote the Ephesians. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul says, put on the armor, the armor of God, the armor of light. Now there's bad news and good news here. The bad news, the fact that we're putting on armor says we are, we are in a battle. Verse 12 of Ephesians 6 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the principalities, the authorities of the evil realm. That's a daunting task. The good news is so very good. This is the armor of God because the battle is not ours to fight. Verse 10 of Ephesians 6, finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his power. Paul knew that promise, that we serve a victorious king. Christ's second advent, he'll come not as that tender baby, but as a conqueror. The battle is won. Ernst Caseman says, Christian ethics is simply lived out eschatology. We know how the story ends, now just, just act like it. Some of our best hymns see this so well. Often that final stanza makes this turn toward that second coming and the, the resurrection promise and hope we have. I love the way the hymn, The Solid Rock, ends. When he shall come with trumpet sound, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, faultless to stand before the throne. Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Friends, Christ is our rock, and he is our robe. Christ is our hope, our candle, here in these wee hours of the morning, that darkness before the dawn.
That is good news worth awaiting. It's good news worth celebrating and proclaiming as we enter this Advent season until Christ comes again. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that the dawn is at hand. Lord, we give you thanks that salvation is nearer than when we first believed. God, I pray for those of us who know and trust you that you would remind us of that hour of our first belief. Remind us of that hour of our baptism. So we put on those new garments given by you. God, I pray for those in this room or, or watching in other places who do not know you, who have not taken that step, Lord. Would you stir in their hearts? God, if your spirit is drawing them, would you bring them today to trust you, to follow in baptism, to unite themselves with this church as we stand together, as we hold out the, the candle of hope, the light of the gospel. God, would you move in hearts even as we sing now? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Sandy leads us, I do invite you. The spirit of Christ is leading you to make a decision publicly, come forward, I'll be at the front. I'd love to pray with you. Would you stand now as we sing? <laughs>